Before we get started today, I do want to put a short disclaimer on this episode to say that Texas FFA is a nonprofit organization who remains neutral in all political matters. However, we are in favor of education as well as advocacy of the agricultural industry. And so the purpose of this podcast is simply to educate our listeners on the Right to Farm bill and give them information so that they can make a wise and educated decision. Texas FFA, welcome back for a very exciting episode of Texas FFA Unraveled. Today, we are bringing you information related to the Texas Right to Farm bill, and this bill was actually authored by Representative Dwayne Burns. And the purpose of this law is essentially to conserve, protect, and encourage the development and improvement of agricultural land for the production of food and agricultural products. And essentially what it does is it limits municipalities from impeding the ability of farmers and ranchers to continue their agricultural pursuits. And so I'd like to welcome Representative Dwayne Burns to the Texas FFA Unraveled podcast. And joining me as my co-host today will be Bryce Fisher, your 2022-2023 first vice president. Thanks for joining us today. Representative Burns, tell us how you got started in public policy. And I know that you were an FFA member, so I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So I grew up on a small farm in the southwest corner of Johnson County, just south of the Metroplex. Went to Cleburne High School. I was a, an officer there in the Cleburne FFA, and we were in the Lake Whitney District and just loved FFA. Participated in Greenhand Parliamentary Procedure Team. and We went to state, actually. And that just got me hooked, I'm telling you. The parliamentary procedure techniques and rules that we used, I use them today. In fact, I can't watch a business meeting without being able to go, oh, that that required a second. Oh, no, that was a two-thirds vote was required there or whatever. And I'll tell you this, when I graduated from Tarleton State, I went to work for the Grain and Feed Association. And then Chris Britton, who I knew through FFA there in Cleburne, was chief of staff for a member of the legislature. And he hired me to be a legislative director last century back in the in the 90s. That gave me a start. I had done an internship with, at that time, Ag Commissioner Perry when I was at Tarleton State and, and graduated from there and, and really loved, you know, being involved in policy and making policy. And then, of course, through FFA and my connection with Chris, got that opportunity to work with two House members. I'll tell you this. I told all my kiddos, I'm not going to make you do anything. But you're going to be an FFA. And all three of them were. They all loved it. It's been an important part of their lives growing up, too. So. And I'm assuming you still have your jacket? My jacket hangs proudly in my Capitol office. I think that speaks to what I think about the FFA. Is it's important enough to me. I want When people walk in my office, they see my FFA jacket. And I think it immediately sends a message to folks where I'm coming from and what I value. So I'm proud of it. Oh, wow. I absolutely love to hear that. I know that our listeners can't see this, but my jacket hangs in my office too, and it's one of my most prized possessions. And so I really appreciate that. Everyone listening to this podcast probably recognizes the importance of agriculture in our state, but we know that not everybody does. That's the purpose of our organization. We want to make sure that people are advocating for agriculture. And essentially, right-to-farm legislation is nothing new. It's been around, I believe, the first legislation for right-to-farm for Texas was passed in 1981. That's correct. There has been right-to-farm legislation for a very long time, but obviously our world has changed a lot since 1981. So we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can as producers, as advocates to fight for agriculture. So right-to-farm legislation basically just protects 
day-to-day practices for agriculturists. A lot of ag teachers realize that, hey, this could be happening in my back door and I don't even realize it. I know personally on travel um, this past year, we were, I believe, in the Houston area talking to some ag teachers, and they told us their students couldn't even have rabbits within the city limits. So they couldn't even show rabbits if they lived in the city limits. They couldn't keep them at the school barn, anything like that, because of the city ordinance. So right to farm legislation is basically that, protecting those students so that they can get involved in agriculture and protecting farmers and ranchers on any production level. You've hit the nail on the head, Bryce. First, let me say this. Thanks for doing this. This is, in my opinion, one of the most important issues that we will deal with in the ag community, maybe in our lifetime. And I really don't want to understate how important I believe this proposition is, Prop 1, that will be on the November 7th ballot, the Right to Farm Amendment. But Bryce, you did a great job of laying out the, the groundwork and explaining what's going on. You were correct. In 1981, Texas passed its first Right to Farm legislation in order to protect the livelihood of farmers and ranchers across the state from government overreach. However, over the years, there's been confusion in how that law is interpreted. You know, the law was originally passed to protect public health, but there was a very loose definition there. And many of our government subdivisions figured out ways to kind of get around the framework of the bill had pretty much, in a way, made it useless. A lot of folks were excluded from that bill when it was originally passed in 81. So we started out to just strengthen the law through House Bill 1750. And as we move forward, we realized that this is the protections that we put forth in House Bill 1750 really need to be ingrained and entrenched in our Constitution. And we want to give the voters of Texas an opportunity to do that. You know, I'm happy to go into some of the examples and, and some of the situations that brought us to where we are today, but you did you did a good job of laying out kind of how we got here and why we're here today. I really appreciate that y'all did the work to realize, hey, this could be a constitutional amendment. This is something of the magnitude with one of every seven Texans that are in the workforce working in agriculture. We have to protect this industry. And the only way to do that all the way is through a constitutional amendment. So I really appreciate y'all putting forth that legislation. It's difficult to pass any legislation, as you all probably know. However, getting a constitutional amendment across the, the finish line is, is even more difficult. It's a higher threshold. It takes a two-thirds vote of both the House and the Senate, whereas a normal piece of legislation would only take a majority vote in the House and the Senate and then signed by the governor. And of course, in the end, it's up to the voters of Texas. But when we were approached by farmers well over a year ago and ranchers that were experiencing some of these in my opinion, crazy situations that we just think, man, that that can't be happening in Texas. Because I'll explain the Right to Farm Act to folks in our industry, and some of them are like, why do we need this? And then when you start to explain some of the ordinances that have been passed, and for example, the first ordinance that came to mind and, and it was brought forth was an ordinance to prevent folks from storing round bales of hay in a hayfield. So you think, what in the world? They said, well, the, the 1981 law doesn't apply because it was in the interest of public health to force these farmers to remove those round bales from hayfields within 48 hours. And that so that's where it started. That was kind of the nexus. And as we got to look and we found ordinances across the state in many cities and in some counties that were really designed to drive farmers and ranchers out of the area. And that's really part of the issue is we, we are a growing state. We've had over 10 million people move to Texas in the last 20 years. And we're expecting another 13 to 18 million over the next 20 years. 
And at the same time, we've lost about a million acres of agricultural production land. And so we're having to feed more people with less land. And luckily, our farmers and ranchers are up to the task. But as folks that used to be in rural areas are now surrounded by new neighbors, cities have grown, and now they find themselves surrounded by new ordinances, it has become a, a real problem for folks in order to, to maintain their way of life and, and keep feeding Texans. Before we go any further, to give our listeners some perspective over why this legislation became necessary, can you give us some examples of some of those ordinances that farmers and ranchers initially became concerned about that really prompted you all to look into this? You bet. Like I said, first was was the hay bale issue and And we actually had a farmer that drove a tractor down I-35 in protest and drove it to the Capitol from the Metroplex. My chief staff met with him personally, and I talked with him, and and we understood what his issues were. But from there, we started meeting other farmers and ranchers that were dealing with similar problems. For example, some cities will pass vegetation height limitations. In other words, you can't have vegetation in your yard or around your business or whatever that may exceed 12 inches or 14 inches or whatever it is in their their particular area. Well, some don't have exceptions or exemptions for ag. And you all know that if you're growing any kind of crop, sorghum, especially corn, anything like that, it's going to exceed 14 inches. So there were instances where these folks, where where the city went in and literally destroyed the crop. And then if that's not bad enough, they then charged the farmer for the destruction of that crop and then assessed administrative penalties on top of that. I mean, those, those are the two most egregious. We found examples where folks couldn't store heavy equipment in a field for more than 48 hours. We found examples where cities were requiring folks to, to utilize buffer zones between their crop and their property line that were just egregious, you know, hundreds of feet, you know, which takes that property out of production. If you have a 200 foot buffer zone around your property between your property line and your crop, well, that's 200 feet all the way around your property that's out of production. Now we realize the importance of public safety. We realize the importance of animal safety. We realize the importance of protecting our natural resources. And there there are protections built into the bill to do those things. But this is really about making sure that farmers and ranchers across the state of Texas are able to do what they've been doing, but also continue that for the future of Texas, because if we can't eat, we can't live here. Absolutely. Representative Burns, I've heard of some thoughts or concerns that this bill doesn't necessarily help small farmers as much as it's helping those larger operations. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think this bill equally helps all agriculturists or do you think there is some variation? Man, that's a great question, Bryce. But let me be very clear about it. This legislation does not mention nor is it geared toward any particular size or commodity of farmer or rancher. This is for everyone. This is just as important, maybe even more important for the folks that are growing their own food in in urban areas. And certainly the small farmer that finds himself on the outskirts of town now and is governed by new ordinances. In fact, that's who brought this to us to begin with. To say it's geared towards the large corporate farmer or something something like that is unfair and blatantly inaccurate. Those same groups have also said in their same testimony that they see the value in this and how it could help everyone. It protects all shapes and sizes of farmers and ranchers. While it does kind of preserve our heritage and and preserve our way of life, preserve what we're what we've been doing and and, and common farming practices, it's really about the future and really about Texans being able to feed other Texans and about food security in Texas. Water is, is a, a primary priority for the state of Texas as we continue to grow. But, you know, making sure we've got enough food to feed folks and, 
and continue to export and support our economy in Texas is just as vital. Correct me if I'm wrong again, that almost every state has some sort of right to farm legislation in it. But out of all of the states in our great nation, would you say that this amendment protects farmers unlike any other? Are we looking to other states as an example for this one? Are we leading the way with this? Well, you know, we would be uh, it would be foolish not to see and look at what's happened in other states if they've already tried this, if they've already done it. We passed a right to farm bill in 1981 that's been on the books, but we've learned from it. We learned from the experience of other states. Ours will be one of the strongest in the nation, if not the strongest in the nation, because we've set an appropriately high bar for allowing a city or a county or a state agency to pass a, a rule or an ordinance that would limit the abilities of a farmer or rancher to do what they do. But it all centers around public safety. It all centers around, you know, animal safety and protecting our water. But again, it's an appropriately high bar. We can't just assume or we can't just think that what a farmer or rancher is doing is damaging to public safety. We've got to prove that. If, a, if there needs to be an ordinance passed to, to govern a farmer or rancher, prove to them and the public that there is a threat to public safety, that there is imminent danger from what that farmer is doing. And then in those cases, absolutely pass an ordinance. And, um, but otherwise, we need, to, we need to be cognizant that these are the folks that are feeding and clothing Texans, the United States, and the world. I, ours will be one of the strongest, but it's, it's appropriate. House Bill 1750 and the Right to Farm Bill really do just protect those reasonable instances that allow farmers and ranchers the right to raise animals and grow crops in order to contribute to the agricultural resources that are established here in our state. Proposition 1 would add a new section to Article 1 of the state constitution to establish a right to farming, ranching, timber production, horticulture, and wildlife management on owned or leased personal property. The amendment states that the right does not preclude the state legislature from passing laws to regulate farming, ranching, timber production, horticulture, or wildlife management practices to protect public health and safety, prevent danger to animals or crop production, or preserve the natural resources of the state. The amendment also states that it does not prevent the state legislature from acquiring property for public use, including the development of natural resources. And so here's the, the most important part. This amendment does not actually take away the right for a municipality to regulate public health or safety. All it does is state that there are certain protections that should be provided to farmers and ranchers so that they can continue doing their job. If, if there's a matter of public health or safety that truly is addressed as a public concern, those municipalities have every right to go in and regulate certain practices if it's absolutely necessary. Do you think municipalities understand it and will be in greater favor of it now that they understand the true contributions? The answer to that is I think they, they are and they will. We've seen some folks, some cities that have already on their own accord before the hopeful passage of the amendment that have kind of reined in some of their own ordinances and repealed some of their ordinances, realizing that they are working directly against what are common ag practices. You know, unfortunately, though, it has taken some protests and folks showing up at, at city council meetings and, you know, stating their case. And unfortunately, we've already seen, like I said, fines levied, crops destroyed, things like that. But that's why it's so important that we all continue to tell the story of agriculture and explain to folks where their food comes from, because we have an increasingly urban society and that's neither good nor bad, but it's just a, a matter of folks don't always understand agriculture and where their food comes from. So, but I think putting this out there, having this on the ballot, at the very least, 
brings up the conversation for cities and counties and folks that run those government entities. Representative, I know a few sessions ago, maybe it was the last one, maybe before, y'all worked a lot on eminent domain reform for agriculturists and people in the state. How does this bill kind of relate to that bill? Are they similar in ways or do they play off of each other in any way? You know, they're separate issues, yet uniquely joined in that at the, you know, I guess at the core, it's a property rights issue. The eminent domain issue was one that we fought for several sessions, and it was all in the name of protecting folks' property rights. And I guess you could say that this amendment does the same thing. It affects the rights of folks that own property and that use property by allowing them to use it as they always have and continue to to make a living on that property as they always have. So I would say, yeah, they're joined in that aspect, but really two separate issues. But but I would say, yeah, they're, they're certainly pri- private property right issues. I agree completely. I think there's some very distinct similarities, but like you said, very different issues in some ways as well. You know, and we were talking about the wording. We're fortunate to have Proposition 1 because that's just luck of the draw for it to be Prop 1. There will be 14 amendments on the ballot on November 7th. And ours is Prop 1. So that's that'll be easy for folks to remember, hopefully. But the language that you'll see on the ballot clearly states the constitutional amendment protecting the right to engage in farming, ranching, timber production, horticulture, and wildlife management. Super simple. I think there will be no confusion from folks when they walk up to the ballot box and see this on their ballot. They'll know exactly what this what the purpose of this amendment is for. And I guess the next thing that I would say is a lot of our listeners are likely to be between the ages of 14 and 18 years old and may not have the opportunity just yet to vote. But what we did want to do is make sure that Texas FFA members are informed citizens. And we work all the time to develop ways to make sure that our students are able to articulate the value of agriculture and to truly advocate for the industry. And so it's important for them to understand this because they're out in the world. They're talking to school board members. They're talking to community leaders. And so why not educate our members? members, as well as our ag teachers and any stakeholders who may or may not be listening to this podcast on what the Right to Farm Bill does so that there's just that many more people out there that are educated on the purpose behind this. Another thing I think is really cool is we're in the season when teachers, students are gearing up for LDE seasons, whether it be uh, writing scripts for ag advocacy or ag issues, writing public relations scripts, preparing speeches for the spring. And so what better time to be informed citizens what's going on in agriculture within your own state than now and to maybe use those opportunities to promote and advocate for farmers and ranchers within your own communities. Sure. And here's the deal. If you can't vote, that's okay. Get two other folks that can vote to go vote. That's what I would say, at least two. This is an ideal topic for discussion meet type leadership contests and things like that. So that's an opportunity for folks. There's a lot of information out there. If you want to do some research on your own about the proposition, there's a website that we've created called righttofarmtexas.com. And it's right, then the number two, farm, Texas. We have social media presence. We have a Facebook page. We have a LinkedIn page. And then, of course, we have an Instagram. And a lot of our farm associations and ranch associations that are associated with agriculture are helping us carry the torch for this. So you can plug into like the Texas Farm Bureau, Texas Association of Dairymen, folks like that, that are plugged into what this issue is and what's going on. But righttofarmtexas.com is where I would start. Well, I think that obviously talking about it and sharing it with our members and sharing it with our advisors really helps a little bit at least. 
But what else can we as FFA members do help educate and promote other than just directing them to your website? Finding ways to plug in to some of these organizations, finding opportunities to stand up and speak. If you have a, a chance to do an ag issues presentation or an extemporaneous speaking opportunity or whatever, maybe utilizing examples that you can find on the Right to Farm website, talking about the importance of this amendment. Because here's the deal. When you put that FFA jacket on, it commands respect around the state of Texas. People know there is meaning and there is some weight and respect that comes with the official dress of the FFA group. And that gives you a platform. And so when you have that platform, if you're able to speak about this constitutional amendment, people will take it seriously, I think. So that, that's one way to do it. If you have a County Farm Bureau board, thanking them for help and asking them how you can plug in and help them. Like I said, maybe put out signs or pass out literature or attend their county convention. Many of our County Farm Bureaus are having their local county conventions in the next month or two. And so attending that convention and passing out literature or having a, a table at that, at that convention with information about the Right to Farm Act could be beneficial. I think there's a lot of good ways, things that I haven't thought of that uh, the younger generation is probably more in tune with too on social media would be would be great. I completely agree with what you were saying, Representative, about those contests as sometimes we get so caught up in the competition side of it that we lose the purpose of the contest, which is to advocate for these issues and to make a difference and make a change in our communities. So I really liked that you touched on that and you just spoke to the truth of what these contests and what these events are about, which is spreading the good news of agriculture and gaining support on a public level. So I really appreciate that. You bet. I learned more about life doing those contests and participating in those leadership programs than, than just about anywhere else. So I encourage all of your FFA members to do that if when they get the opportunity. Every chapter is supposed to have a program of activities. And within that program of activities, there's certain divisions that chapters are encouraged to accomplish. And ag literacy and ag education is one of them. And so this is a prime example of how students can engage with community members, community leaders to educate them and inform them and encourage them to not only protect our farmers, but protect our ability to grow enough food to feed the residents of Texas. The impact that FFA members have stretches far beyond what we really think it does at the surface level, right? When we start thinking about the contests and the speaking opportunities and the engagement, just the fact that you've listened to Bryce articulate several historical bills that have been passed, and he wouldn't have that knowledge without his participation in FFA. And, and I too attribute a lot of my success to, to my career in FFA. Representative, I love that you mentioned those organizations and what they've been doing to help with this legislation. Could you speak to more of what the Texas Farm Bureau has done or what other agriculture organizations in the state have done to help in writing this policy and help getting it passed? You bet. We couldn't have done it without folks like the Texas Farm Bureau and the dairymen and folks in the Texas Nursery Landscape Association. And I don't want to leave anyone out, but they're, you know, everyone on the Texas Ag Council basically had a hand in helping us write this and craft this and make sure that it did exactly what we needed to do. And then not only after, you know, we got it passed in the House and Senate, once it was set on the ballot in November, many of those organizations stepped up to the plate with contributions to the Right to Farm Texas PAC. I created a PAC after we ended the last legislative session, and it's called Right to Farm Texas PAC. And the purpose of it is strictly and only to pass this proposition. I wanted our folks in the ag community to feel confident that they could contribute to a PAC that had one focus 
and was, you know, not geared towards any one commodity or anything like that. All of our friends in the ag community could feel comfortable contributing and being a part of that pack. Take corporate dollars, we could take individual dollars, private money, association money, whatever, and put it to good use, to the best use in order to pass this proposition. And when I laid that out to the different ag organizations, to their credit, they all bought in and have contributed in major ways. I'll tell you this, and it, the county farm bureaus, not not just the Texas Farm Bureau, but the county farm bureaus across the state. And, and many of your FFA folks are familiar with their local county farm bureau boards of their particular counties. Those folks have stepped up in a major way. And from the counties themselves, collectively, we are at around $400,000 contributed to the Right to Farm Texas PAC. That is a lot of money. It is not where we need to be yet, because if we have opposition, it's going to be, it's going to take a lot more than that. However, we are just thrilled and so proud of the folks, the grassroots, the folks that are out there farming and ranching every day that they have, they see the importance of this legislation and they have put their, their money where their mouth is and, and are supporting it. Many of our county farm bureaus and these organizations have yard signs and four by eight signs to put up. And that could be a way that your FFA members can plug in by helping folks put those yard signs out or those four by eight yard signs out. And, you know, if they can't vote, they can put out signs and, and spread the word. We are extremely fortunate to have 170,000 members here in Texas, and then just over 2,200 teachers who obviously make an effort to support agriculture and educate our youth about agriculture so that we can continue to replenish those advocates who hopefully will follow in your footsteps and, and create these bills that protect our farmers and their ability to provide resources for us. And so I'm excited to get this information out to our listeners and certainly appreciative of your time time. Is there anything else that you think that we should maybe share with our listeners before we wrap up here? Oh, goodness. Just want to reiterate how important it is. And we've said it, we've said it many times during our visit today, but this is a generational opportunity for agriculture. This is the agriculture amendment for our time. And it is imperative that we get the message out and it is even more important that we show up at the polls in November or bring folks to the polls on November 7th to vote for Proposition 1. If anyone has any questions or needs any more information, again, write to farmtexas.com or contact anyone in my office and we're happy to help you. I'm excited to see, hopefully, Bill passes through and I have no doubt that it will. And I'm super excited to see the impact it has on Texas agriculture. Thank you for all the work you've done. You bet. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And, and uh, again, got great colleagues in the house that have worked with us on all sides of the political arena, all shapes and sizes. We've had urban legislators that were joint authors and co-authors. We've had folks from rural Texas. So they get it. People understand this is for all Texans. But thanks for having me. Thank you to my great staff that have helped shepherd this along with me. And, and thank you to your members for tuning in and for what they're going to do leading up to the November 7th election. Appreciate y'all. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Texas FFA Unraveled.